you can see a million off-Broadway shows and if you're lucky enough, it can all be so different and something that you wouldn't expect and that you didn't even know was possible to be able to put on stage. And I think that's the thing that's so exciting about Off-Broadway. I'm Eric Ostro, and this is Live at the Lortel, a podcast all about off-Broadway theater. Each week, we give our listeners unique access to theater makers currently working off-Broadway. Please visit our website, liveatthelortel.com, where you can find a list of upcoming guests and reserve tickets for our live recordings. All tickets are free. At the end of each podcast, we provide an opportunity for our audience to ask questions. If you can't make a recording, you can submit a question via Twitter. Just tell us your question and who it's for using the hashtag AskLiveAtTheLortel. We will try our best to get your question on the show. Without further ado, please welcome our guest, Danye R. Love. Let's get it. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm so excited that you're here. Mm. You were one of the people that was an A-list of mine that we really wanted to get on. You have so much to say, and I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. So we always start in the same place. Mm -hmm. We start of your current work, which is about to open, and we'll go over those dates in a minute. So Mm -hmm. talk to me about your current work and, and what's going on. Oh, one and two. Um, the name of the play is one, one and, and two. two. One in two. And I started writing the play the end of last year because I was approaching the 10th anniversary of being HIV positive. And I was in this... Of getting the news that you were yes, HIV positive. Okay. of uh, being diagnosed as HIV positive. And I was in such a weird space And it it shocked me because I actually thought that once I got to this 10 year marker that I would feel victorious in a way, but I I didn't. The shame I felt started to reemerge. And about two years prior to this 10th year marker, I was public with my uh, status. And I was in, in between that period, I was doing a lot of work to navigate through the shame I felt, to navigate through the stigma that society placed on me. And so that's why when the 10th year marker uh, was approaching, I thought that I would be victorious, that I was like, okay, I navigated myself to this point, I'll be able to handle this, and I couldn't. It was incredibly difficult, I hardly got out of bed, and one thing that always helps is writing. And so my laptop, was on my desk and I couldn't get out of bed and I wasn't going to get up to get my laptop. So I grabbed the phone from the nightstand and in the note apps, uh, I started to write this play. And the more I started to write the play, the more I started to think about this statistic that came out in 2016 by the CDC, which says one in every two black, gay and bisexual man Um, And it's also been um, noted that black transgender women will be diagnosed with HIV in their lifetime, which is absurd. It is absolutely absurd. So the more I started to think about that statistic and what my journey has been as a black queer HIV positive man, I started to write this play. And as often as uh, writing has done for me, I started to feel myself 
get out of this dark space that I was in, I found myself starting to become healed. And I was like, oh, yes, this is why I started to write. This is what writing can do. And we have one and two. Tell me a little bit about the story. I mean, as much as you can. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so this is, I will say, oddly enough, um, well, not oddly enough. It's, it's one of the funniest plays that I've written. And I wanted to make sure, because so often when people think about and talk about HIV, it has this weight to it. And I think about my friends who are also positive, and when we get together, we don't sit around and say, oh, woe is me, I'm HIV positive. Like, no, <laughs> we are past that. We don't commiserate. Um, and, if there yeah, is yeah. a like, woe is me moment, it's about, oh, how am I gonna pay this bill, <laughs> or this boy, and I did this. And so with that, I wanted to make sure that I showed a fullness of what it means to be HIV positive today. And there's a line in the play that says something which is so true. There are so many stories of people dying of AIDS but not living with HIV. And I was really interested in what that story is like. And so in the play, we follow three black and queer men in a waiting room. And as you can imagine, they are waiting. And as they're waiting, the statistic that I talked about, uh, it becomes personal for these men. And the numbers that are creating this statistics, they start growing more and more and more. And as they're growing, they aren't just numbers anymore, they become people. The people who make up this statistic, the people who are affected by this statistic. So all of this is happening and we get to meet these people that make up this statistic and that are affected by the statistic as these three black and queer men are in this waiting room. So the um, statistics are coming to life. Is that what you mean? Yes. Wow. Yes. What an incredible idea. And we see what that means and we see what that looks like and we see who are these numbers. How long have you been working on the play? I've been working on the play physically writing it yeah. um, on my note section mm -hmm. for a year in terms of living it for 10 years. Take me back a little bit mm -hmm. to, because um, I've seen some interviews with you, the way you talk about your family and your mom and yes. um, the incredible relationship that you have with mm -hmm. your mother and how I don't know her, obviously. I just know her through how you speak of her. Mm -hmm. She seems like uh, someone that just says it like it is. Mm -hmm. like that's just who, mm -hmm. who she just is. I just mom like, earlier and she was saying it like it is. Right, I mean, <laughs> thank God for those people in our life, right? Uh -huh. and then, Take me back to 10 years ago a little bit, and I don't know how much you want to share mm -hmm. about when you found out you were HIV positive mm -hmm. and, and where that was then and, and where it is now and how you've grown as an artist and a, and a person. Yeah. Wildly enough, yesterday I was looking through photos, and it was a photo of me when I was about five or six years old, and I found myself getting emotional just thinking about that Danye in this Danye and if that Danye would be proud of this Danye. And I also found myself just wondering who was the Danye pre-HIV. And honestly, it is hard to remember who that Danye was. I remember there was a quote where someone was saying, who are we outside of our trauma? 
Like, do we really know who we are outside of the trauma that we've experienced? And that thing hit me so hard because as yesterday when I was thinking about who was the Danye pre-HIV, I was like, I can't remember who that individual was. Um, what I do know, though, is after being diagnosed, I've been fighting like hell to be the softest version of myself that I could be to be the most authentic version of myself that I could be, to be someone who is so used to not taking up space, to be someone who is so used to saying that you don't deserve to be in this space, to when I get into a space that I'm going to make it my space, and that you will know that I am here as a black man, as a queer man, as an HIV positive man, and you are honored to be in my space. And so, Thinking about your question, when I was first diagnosed, everything was, it was a blur, actually. I really don't remember much. One of the very first things I remember, though, is when I walked out of the clinic, this is when I uh, lived in North Philly. Um, when I walked out of the clinic, I was like, this got to be some sugar honey iced tea. It literally started raining. Like I was in some sort of like sappy movie. I'm like, come on now, I'm just learning this status. Now it's raining, I don't have no umbrella because I didn't think it was going to rain. So I'm walking home in the rain. And I remember it was kind of, I equated to when I shared my truth of being queer, it was kind of like an assembly line that I went through of people. And when I disclosed my status, it was an assembly line of people who I told. And it was a select group of people who I told this information to. The person who I remember her response is a response I will never forget. And this is my mom. It always makes me think of that saying of, it looks like you were hit by a Mack truck. Because I remember her, her chest caved in and like her arms kind of flowed out this way and it, it looked like you could actually see her being pushed in. And she was quiet for a while. And I remember she said that, I love you. She said, I'm here for you. And we are going to get through this. And as a typical mama, I remember for about maybe a good few months afterward, she would always call me, it's some tuna fish on sale, I got you some tuna fish, you can have some tuna fish, I got you some waters, I, got, I went to the market to get you this, get you that. I'm like, mom, I am okay. You don't always gotta get everything that's on sale for me right now. <laughs> um, but like, that was her way of being like, I, I'm, I'm here for you, we're gonna get through this thing together, I'm gonna make sure you're the healthiest version of yourself that you can be, because these tuna fish are on sale, so I got you. Um, and then I remember, I stopped talking about it altogether for, I actually don't know how long, but I, I, I did not talk about it. I started drinking a whole hell of a lot. Like, I remember it was so bad that when I would, literally when I would wake up in the morning, I would have like a pitcher, the pitcher that you make like Kool-Aid in, I would just pour vodka in it. I would pour like a mixer in it and I would just have it through like throughout the day. I would just go into the kitchen, open up the refrigerator and just pour it and like that would literally be my water that I would drink. You were numbing yourself. I would 100% with drinking, with sex. And I remember, again, I, I, I didn't talk about it, 
after I had this assembly line of coming out and I didn't think that people noticed or people cared honestly. And I remember one day I was with my brother, uh, not my blood brother, but someone who's so close that I call him my brother. And I was talking to him about this boy that I thought was really cute. And he didn't say anything when I was like, oh my gosh, this guy looks good as I don't know what. And I'm like, why is he not like saying anything? And I was like, did you just hear what I said? And he was like, yeah, but if I can be honest, I do not remember when was the last time you talked about a guy. And like, it, it never hit me that I realized, oh, I, for a long period of time, I didn't see myself as a sexual being. That I, I didn't see myself as someone who was worthy of being desired or uh, acting on my desire. And I think it was in that moment, on top of multiple moments, when I started to like realize I need to not get back to who I was, because that Danya was then, but start to really figure out who I am as a person living with HIV. And like, how can I navigate this thing? And it took me multiple years after that point to get to the uh, Danya that's right here. But there was an actual moment of when you kind of turned, yeah. but it, whether it was deliberate or not, but you, started talking about being uh, uh, desired or, yeah. or something. And how much of, of all of this that went through, obviously a lot, is, is, has gone into this new work? I would say a whole heck of a lot. This process is my amazing director, C.V. Walker-Webb. Um, he said it best. This is some of the most exciting work and it's also some of the most terrifying work at the same time. I am super excited to be telling the story, a story that we don't often get to see, but I'm also terrified of kind of going like this, ripping myself open and being like, this is, this is Danye. What are you scared of? Um, people seeing the ugly, people seeing the darkness, but then also I know how necessary that is at the same time. So it is literally me. And, and this week, I'll, I'll admit, has been a very challenging week because I've, I've found myself navigating through possibly a depressed place, being in the rehearsal room and seeing this play and what's going on and having actors rehearse and interrogate and unpack and question and challenge moments in the play, which are moments in my life. So that is a very interesting thing that I've never done with any of my work before. And then I felt my anxiety creep up, asking, is this gonna matter? And like underneath all of that is, do I even matter, right? And so navigating all of that, but then also understanding that absolutely, like absolutely, like I have to do this because this is this is larger than me. I talked about that statistic one in every two. Mm -hmm. This is larger than me. Like I am a part of a community who needs this, right? And so as I'm navigating through these negative emotions, I'm also understanding that I have to navigate through that to get to that. If that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Is it very healing for you to be in the rehearsal room working with the actors and directors? It's both. It's both. And I think it's beautiful that it's both because it's letting me know how full this piece is and how this piece contains multitudes 
I will say, though, that Stevie, again, my director, the actors, and everyone involved, everyone, the uh, new group staff, everyone that I've come in contact with as it relates to this play has held such a space of softness for me and for the work that though there are moments where I'm being incredibly hard on myself, that I know that I'm surrounded by so much softness, right? That I can just bump up into the softness and some of that hardness will start to rub off. So it makes it, 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 makes it easier in that way. That's nice, 100%. very comforting for you. Yeah, I need that. What are you, as a playwright, <laughs> <laughs> as a playwright, who are you in, in that rehearsal room? How, how are you with the actors and, you know, not that actors are, are difficult to deal with or, or directors, right? <laughs> so um, I'm just curious in terms of, we've had a lot of playwrights here on mm -hmm. and many of them say, okay, well, this is how it's written. This is a written word. If you're having a problem saying this line, it's not my problem. So oh. I'm interested like what, <laughs> what how, how, do you, how do you deal with that? How do you navigate your way through uh, an actor that says, oh, I, you know, I can't find my objective in this line, or, you know, can you change this? How open are you to changes? I am open. <laughs> I am... That was believable, yeah. Open, <laughs> because I, 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 I want to make sure that, like, I get this right in terms of, like, who Danye, the playwright, is in the room. I am open to the extent in which everyone else involved is also open, right? And so if I can tell that you aren't even trying, don't meet me with that. No shade, don't meet me with that. Like if, if you aren't even going to try, then absolutely not. But if you are trying and if you're coming up against a wall, then how did I, what did I do to create that wall, right? What can I do as the writer to help remove that wall? Do I need to remove that wall or do you need to try harder? I am all about collaboration because at the end of the day, I'm nobody's actor. I am a writer and I know I need actors to be able to embody these characters. I know I need a director to, to guide everyone. I know I need designers to bring the visual and the sound landscape of what's going on together. Like we are in this thing together. And so I want to make sure that I show up as a part of a community. And with that being said, that whoever I'm working with, you also need to show up to be a part of a, a community because we are not getting paid enough for your ego. So you can leave that, <laughs> you can leave that somewhere else. Um, so yes, I, I am open to an extent that the people around me are also open because that's the only way that we're gonna be able to create something beautiful. Well, because it's, it's ultimately like a well-oiled machine. I mean, one, every part has to work in order for it to, to come out something of quality. And, and beauty and, and art. A hundred percent. And with that, I will say another reason why I paused is again, with, with this play in particular, it can be challenging. Like it can be challenging. Like there have been rehearsals where I had to leave the room because I cannot, I cannot sit back and watch this moment in my life be rehearsed over and over and over again, because that's way too triggering. There have been rehearsals where I didn't go because I needed to preserve the softness within myself, right? Mm -hmm. And so with that being said, I am open, but I'm also open to making sure that Danye is intact at the end of the day as well. It's good yeah. to know.
good to, good way to protect yourself. Oh, hundred percent. Still keep open to everything. A hundred percent. And then also, like I said, it helps to have such amazing people in the community. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. Time is going so quickly, and there's so much to talk about. Let's go back to your play, Sugar in Our Wounds. Yes, now. I really want to talk about it. Now. So we Come had through, <laughs> We had Sahim Ali, uh, who directed yes. Children in Our Wounds, and uh, yes, please. He, he, um, and uh, he talked about the experience with such love mm. and respect for you and the process and, and what the two of you went through to get to here. Share with us and our audience, I know everybody here knows about it, but for our listeners, what Sugar in Our Wounds was about? So Sugar in Our Wounds is... It's my baby. Yeah. Sugar No Wounds is my baby. It is a play that explores queer love and the antebellum South and imagining what does it look like for two enslaved men to be able to find each other and to be able to love each other and to be able to say that who I am and how I love is possible, even in this landscape? And what does that mean for these individuals to be audacious enough to say that in my existence, I can exist this way, like I can live a life like this. And I can love another man. I, I can exactly, show. Exactly, love. I can show up for myself, um, even if I never saw it before, right? I can show up for myself in a way where I can just be. And, and, and that's what uh, one of the characters, Henry, talks about, is just being able to be, right? His full, authentic self. And so, yeah, so Sugar is a play that I remember I read uh, Tara Ava McCraney's Marcus or The Secret of Sweet. And there's a passage where a character, uh, Shanta, she's probing her best friend, Marcus, who's the, the uh, protagonist in the play. And when she's probing him, trying to figure out his sexuality, one of the things that, that she mentions is hearing about what slave masters would do to their queer enslaved men. And I was like, what? I never in my life thought about or fathomed queerness during the time of enslavement. And that blew my mind. And then I was so pissed. Like I was pissed with myself of not imagining someone who loves like me existing during that time. And I was so upset with myself that I was like, oh, you, you, you need to do something with this emotion. Like you have to do something with this emotion. And that doing something for me was writing. And so I just started to write this play. And I remember I mapped it out. I knew who all the characters were. And I got in front of my laptop and I was ready to go off. And the very first, I was, I was like, I'm about to do this. The very first character that started talking was a tree. And I was like, what? <laughs> that tree was nowhere in my like mapping out of characters. So I was like, okay, I'm sure probably after this scene, the tree is gone, <laughs> be gone. Um, but the tree was like, no, I I'm am saying. a part of this story um, because there's so much thinking about blackness in America and how we have such a very unique relationship with trees. 
that tree was such, for me, it is the sixth character in the play. And just like navigating through all of that, and you were talking about Sahim, being able to work with Sahim, he is such um, a giving director. He's a director who really, for him, is about what's on the page. And like how can everyone involved really bring to life what's on the page? And then also, when Sugar in Our Wounds was produced, uh, that was my first, it was my off-Broadway debut. Mm. So I was excited, I was nervous, I was all over the place, I didn't know how to show up for myself at times. And Sahim really like held my hand and made me understand that I have a voice in the room. Like not just what you see on the page, but like the person who shows up in, in the room as well. And he is, because of that and so many other things, he is such an amazing human being. He is, he's a, a, a wonderful, talented, loving man. Mm -hmm. I mean, he very Give much it up. You know, you, I, when I saw the play, I, I didn't know what to expect. Mm. I read a, a little bit about it. We don't think about gay people existing in times mm -hmm. where there was kind of terror going on in the world. Your play smacked me in the face so hard. It's so beautifully written and Thank the you. actors were so magnificent too, but it mm -hmm. made me, it's, it did what theater's supposed to do, is it made you think mm -hmm. after and have a conversation after about what we saw on stage mm. and who we are and the way we treat each other. And it doesn't end well, mm -hmm. which destroyed me. Mm -hmm. it, it, yeah. it, it killed me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, um, I know I wrote the play, but I can't even imagine what it truly had to have been like for someone who exists as queer um, someone who exists as queer and was enslaved, someone who was trans and was an enslaved individual. Like, I cannot imagine what that was like. And this is me in 2019, going on 2020, like having a whole lot of husband. Like, I can't imagine like what that was like back then. And the best thing I could do was using the gift I was given of being able to like to write it so that we can start to imagine so that we can be able to have a conversation right about who we are like the fullness of ourselves being as completely self-actualized as we possibly can be so like that was for me one of the most important things like I wrote that play to be able to see myself in history mm. and then it became a thing that oh this is much bigger than you, Danye. It's about so many people being able to see themselves in history and saying that we've existed um, and we will continue to exist. And I gotta say, you keep writing to see yourself in all the material that you write. I have to. So you keep reinventing to see yourself in where we are today, which is, which is incredible, which is why people should write and, and mm -hmm. why they do is to, to keep representing and to keep seeing. So before folks uh, walked in, we were talking about how I got into uh, playwriting. Mm -hmm. I always wrote, ever since I was a little boy, um, when I was a little boy, I had a horrible stuttering problem. And so the Danye right now, back then, I would not be doing this at all mm -hmm. because I, would, I knew that my stutter 
would um, embarrass me, would make me feel so isolated. So when I was a little boy, whenever someone would just ask, hey, how are you, Danye? I would literally write down my answer. Um, when someone asks, how are you feeling? I would write down my answer. Not thinking much of it, but that literally was how I would express myself. That was my voice. Fast forward to when I was a teenager, I wrote poems a lot. I was into spoken word, not really thinking much of it. When I was in college, I would always really pay so much attention to every single line of dialogue, line of text, of why did the playwright put the comma right here? Like, what did the playwright mean by that? Not thinking much of it, just like, oh, I'm just an OD actor. Then, fast forward to when I found out that I was HIV positive, the thing that literally, on top of my amazing support system, the thing that saved my life was writing. And I wrote my first play after I found out that I was HIV positive. And I remember sharing with you how I felt. I felt, oh, I think I can navigate through this. I think I can survive and thrive as a person living with HIV. And this is what I felt from writing. And so I told myself, oh, if I feel this way from writing, I wanna keep writing. And if I feel this way from writing, I can only imagine what someone else may be able to feel. So when you talk about noticing in my work this kind of thread of seeing myself exist, I had to. Like with writing, particularly when I found out I was HIV positive, it was my way of seeing myself exist. Because I could have went in a totally different direction and writing helped me continue to be right here right now. You also could have just written about things that you don't know about and that we've seen every day. Mm -hmm. um, a queer man in any circumstance, but obviously you're writing about what you're knowing and obviously it's healing you back, back and forth. A hundred percent. This is how you heal yourself. A hundred percent, right? Like as, again, black man, queer man, HIV positive man, like I was saying, we are conditioned to not take up space. We are conditioned to believe that we don't matter. And for me, writing was a way of saying I do matter and I am going to take up space. And when I put this paper, when I put this pen to paper, you will be able to see, like not just who I am, but so many people in my community as well, and how we are so strong and how we are so mighty. And hopefully, oftentimes I talk about, for me, I think writing is two things. I think writing is the craft, which is incredibly important for me. And then also another thing that I always uh, open myself up to make space for in my writing is for the divine. I can't control that whatsoever. In terms of the craft and structure and form, I can do as much as I possibly can, training, studying, discipline, all of those things. But then there's another part, the divine, which I have no control over whatsoever. And I wanna make sure that I always, in my work, leave room for the divine to show up because I have no control over that whatsoever. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You know, speaking about the divine, and uh, I, I'm fascinated by mm -hmm. it, I think, do you know when it, is it, and maybe it's too personal of a question, but do you know when you're actually writing where you're like, oh, I, I'm not even moving these fingers. Mm. Like it's, it's the mind to the heart to the hand mm -hmm. that's putting these out that's 
what is that feeling like of, you know, um, riding the wave or feeling divine come through or I'm not in control right here. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I have structure, I have spell check, I have all that stuff, mm -hmm. but here is, is something that I can't, I have no words for. Yeah, it's, for me, it often shows up in the very beginning mm -hmm. um, because that's when I'm not in my way. I'm just like, just, just write, get it out. And then I'll find myself when rewrites come into play and when I go back and edit and look over things where that's when I start to get in my way. And sometimes I find myself trying to like navigate through that like divine energy that's there. And then there's times when I go back and I look over it and I'm like, oh, it was something like greater at work that was moving and I was just lucky enough to be the vessel. I was disciplined enough to be the vessel. But for me, the divine often shows up in the very beginning of the process, sometimes scattered throughout the like rewrite mm -hmm. process and throughout the rehearsal process. Like is when I truly feel it, especially I've uh, gotten to a point of being really intentional with the space that I cultivate I mean, the people who are in the space when we are rehearsing the work and making sure that we always hold space for that divine energy to show up in the room and to show up in the work. And you can just feel it. You can just feel when like you as the individual are in this certain space and then you can feel when the community comes together and that you are in this thing together. It's like you can't control that. It's interesting how you say the divine kind of takes over at the beginning, but when you're rewriting, do you feel like at the beginning you're just kind of pushing your foot to the, on the accelerator and it's just kind of coming out, but maybe when it comes to rewrites that there's a, a moment at least of you of like judging what you've written already and there's, like you have to be open and available for it to come. Absolutely, when I'm rewriting, I'm like, oh, I am the worst writer ever. Right. <laughs> I am yeah. the worst right. writer known to existence. Mm -hmm. I start to get into my head mm -hmm. and I start to question, like why, like why this moment, why this character, like all of those things. I'm gonna um, go do something else. This right? is not the career Exactly, me, right? this, is, this yeah. is not it. Everybody's gonna realize I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so I just need to beat them to the punch and be like, peace y'all. Um, <laughs> But then there are moments when I'm like, oh, you know what? I actually do know what I'm doing. I am supposed to be doing this. This is my purpose. And again, for me, that all uh, boils down to like this divine energy. And this may sound intense. I think about being diagnosed with HIV. It put me on this path that I couldn't even imagine that I would be on. It put me on this path of, for me, when I became HIV positive, I started to realize that nothing is promised. I started to realize that, oh, because I was 22, 23 when I was um, diagnosed, I started to really think about and realize that, oh, this, this life thing is not forever. So I have to make sure that I do everything I possibly can do to hold as much space for myself while I'm here right now. And again, as odd as it may sound, I started to realize that 
when I became HIV positive, it completely shifted my perspective and like how I not just look at myself, but how I look at this thing called life and like what is my place in it. You're kind of on a, a path of um, doing for the community uh, a good deed and service of some kind too. You are a voice for a very large community of people who don't have a voice. So I thank you for that. I think that's that's pretty incredible. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not in this thing by myself. No. Like, I'm not no. in this thing by myself. So, um, I, my God. I want to talk about the play after yes. um, Fireflies. Fireflies. Let's talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. um, what's the premise of the play? So the premise of the play, we are following this young married couple, Olivia and Charles, and I'm... I'm always intentional with saying Olivia's name before Charles. Olivia and Charles, who are pivotal forces in the civil rights movement that the play is set during. And we see Charles, who is this, this force, who is this leader in the movement. And we see Olivia, his wife, and she is, she truly is the force of the movement. And for me, I was really interested and I was really curious in public versus private. And so what does it look like to be these enormous public figures, right? And enormous public figures who are a part of a movement that is so dedicated for change and for the better. And then also being these enormous public figures who are deeply religious people, what does, what does their private life look like? And how does the weight of their public persona play into and complicate and confuse their private lives? And like, what does that look like? And so I was just really interested in that. And then I just always find myself thinking about whenever there is a pivotal moment of upward progression within not just the black life and experience, but within the world, there is always a black woman there. I think about Harriet Tubman and what she did. I think about in terms of the like civil rights movement, I think about Rosa Parks. When I think about right now with the Black Lives Matter movement and three black women, two of those women are queer women being such pivotal forces. Whenever there is, is this shift in this movement, when things are progressing for the better, there is always a black woman there. And so I was really interested and really curious of like, what does that look like for this time? that Fireflies was set and how does this woman understand who she is and find her voice in the process of all of that? Yeah, it was also a magnificent piece of work and it was, what is interesting for me was the, the public versus the private mm -hmm. and how that intersects between the two of them and how the world perceives it as well. Especially, I mean, we had two incredible people of color in the White House, mm -hmm. and what that looked like. And I want to be uh, really quickly, really mm -hmm. um, intentional, because oftentimes out here, when we talk about people of color, it's like this wash. So I want to be very intentional with, it was two black people in the White House. Lesson learned. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, my other question, too, is being, I have some age on you. So mm -hmm. what's interesting to me is that you identify as queer mm -hmm. as opposed to, to gay. That's how you 
What is the, um, and I had this question for Sahim too, because mm -hmm. he considers himself queer. I don't, I mean, obviously I'm queer, I'm gay, I'm, I'm all of those things. Mm -hmm. But the, um, my question to you is how, what's the difference in terms of, for our listeners, how you identify as queer as opposed to, to gay? First of all, I was just living when you said I'm queer, I'm gay, I'm all of those things. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> come through. Um, <laughs> for me, when I, I mean, it's no secret. <laughs> I mean, I clearly it comes all the way through. Um, when I think about queer versus gay, gay for me feels very specific. It feels like this culture that has a limitation on it. It's a box, and it feels very much rooted in one sexuality versus queer um, feels more expansive. Queer feels for me very much like an identity and it's fluidity in it, right? My queerness is different than your queerness, is different than my husband's queerness, right? Like for me, when I think about gay, it's this overall general wash. But queer is so much rum and there's so many colors in there and who a queer person can be and how a queer person can identify. So for me, that's the difference between queer and gay. I'm changing to queer. Come on now. I'm queer. Get your life. Yeah. Get your queer life. It's going so quickly. We're running out of time so quickly. But thank you for being such an incredible audience. But we have some time. We have a, a microphone over here that we've queued up. And I'm sure we're going to raise the lights and see. Wow, we got a nice audience. And see yes. if we have some questions for our guests. So please don't be shy. You weren't shy during this whole hour, so now all of a sudden everybody's so quiet. How was your self-care this week? How was your self-care this week? My self-care this week was I took multiple baths, and I love this, this salt that I put in the bath. Sometimes it's lavender. This time it was eucalyptus, some bubbles up in there. And then my husband, God bless his heart, he got some CBD oil. And so I had some CBD oil to help with the anxiety. I'm feeling like I was on a cloud. I love binge watching shows, eating some ice cream. That's what my self-care looked like this week. Good question. And meditating. I, I, I started meditating um, over the summer and I've been getting my meditation on. Yeah. Good. Come through self-care. Hello. My name is Marcus Curlew, and I, I just love this, you know, this interview and this podcast. I'm having a good time. But I wanted to know, I liked how you touched on how, you know, whenever a black woman is involved, there's always progression. Where did that acknowledgement come from? In terms of uh, me? Yeah. Um, and my personally. thought process? I how did you come to that awareness? So I think about the the black women in my life. Yeah. Um, and why I just kind of gave that, that sigh is I didn't want to admit that because I don't want it to always be this thing of, oh, because I know black women, that's why I care yeah. um, about black women. It should just be we care about black women because they exist. Awesome. Um, like that should really be, be the sentence. Yeah. But being transparent because of the uh, women in my life and how incredibly soft they are, how much grace they have, 
um, how they have such this overwhelming capacity to hold space, not just for themselves, but for others as well. And like, that's what I, every day I actually strive for that. Wow. Every single day I strive to be able to hold space for me and to be able to hold space for others equally. And that has impacted um, your work. A hundred percent. Awesome. A hundred percent, yeah. So I think about the women in my life. Awesome. Yeah. Great awesome. question, thank you, Marcus. Brother. Thank come you so through. much. Thank you. Yeah, come on up. Unless you think you can project. Yeah. First of all, you know I love you. Yes. And uh, uh, Sugar Home was one of my favorite plays, and I actually cried so many times during that play. But what I want to ask you is, um, what has been your collaboration process uh, in your productions when it came to you having a close relationship with your technical teams, uh, specifically your set design team, mm -hmm. and making sure that the physicality of what you have uh, written down physically has actually uh, curated on the stage as far as like the set design? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. A really, really good question. I think first and foremost for me, it always goes to one who my director is and like knowing how they work so closely with the designers, the uh, set design in particular. So making sure that whoever my director is, that we have a connection where if I'm away, I feel 100% comfortable and confident that they'll be able to speak on my behalf and be able to articulate all of the things that are going on in my head as much as possible. And then there are moments where they do their thing and they come back and they let me see whatever the model is, the idea is, um, and I'll give my thoughts and I'll give my opinions of, oh, I actually never envisioned it this way, but I actually can see it going this way. Or, you know what, I actually don't know if this will work because we have to think about this moment as well. And because of this moment, this might be a bit off. So how can we make sure that what we have right now honors that moment? And so I think it's all of those things. But for me, it always boils down to making sure that I have uh, such a close relationship with whoever my director is. Because like they're the individuals who will be like literally talking to everybody and like really being the one leading the ship and making sure that everything is as cohesive as possible. Oh, we have time for, yeah. My name is Roderick Thomas. And um, first of all, I'm so blessed and honored to be here. You, you know, your work is amazing. Thank um, you. I had a question about the couple, the civil rights mm -hmm. uh, couple. Um, and I think you said Olivia and- Olivia and Charles. And yeah. and Charles. Um, one of the things that I think when, when you're writing about our community, black community, queer black community, Oftentimes, when we're trying to push forward, there's like a critique, inner critique that we have to do about the things that are going on within our community. When you're writing, mm -hmm. do you have any trepidation, any fear about critiquing the community um, or things that we have to work oh. on? And does that ever hold you back? So how do you oh. feel about that? Come through. Good question. That's a question. And so a few things come to mind. One, I remember coming across, it was an interview with uh, James Baldwin. Interviewer asked him, kind of commented on, you were born black, queer, and impoverished. Uh, you must have thought to yourself, how disadvantaged can I get? And quick as a whip, Uncle Jimmy's response was, no, I actually thought I hit the jackpot. And so I think about like these identities, particularly my like queerness, my uh, blackness, and how oftentimes 
IMM rooms with individuals, at least at the very beginning stages, where individuals don't look like me. And so with that being said, I know that I know what I'm talking about. And I am the best individual to advocate for what I'm talking about. I am always open to hear and to understand. There are times where like, I literally have to say, oh, this is a note that's about culture and not craft. And it's a big difference. Mm -hmm. Now you can talk to me about craft, but you're not gonna talk to me about culture because that's something completely different. <laughs> and so with that though, it's in terms of when I'm like, sitting down writing the thing first and foremost, I have to do a lot of like unpacking on things that are like internalized within me that like I have to navigate through. And for me, I also think about Toni Morrison often talked about the white gaze and I have done and I'm still doing work to rid myself of the white gaze and I took it a step further of ridding myself of the straight gaze as well. So how can I write as authentically as I possibly can on that intersection of blackness and queerness where whenever someone comes to see my work, uh, they are getting a black queer experience. And if you don't identify as either of those, then you should consider yourself lucky to be a guest of being able to see the work of a black person. And there's no shame, but it was a lot of work that I need to do to, to navigate through that. But yeah. Great question. All right, one, one final. This is the husband. That's my husband, y'all. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna start saying come through. Now. Come through. A lot of changes for me tonight, okay. My name is Brandon Nicholas. Hey, y'all. Okay. My question is, what are you most looking forward to with one and two? Ooh. <laughs> what am I most looking forward to and with one and two? <laughs> I can't. I think I am really looking forward to the conversation of what it means to exist as a black queer person living with HIV today. Because again, I, I, I talked about one of the lines in the play is, uh, so often there are stories of people dying from AIDS, but not living with HIV. So what does it look like now in 2019, about to be 2020, to be a black queer person living with HIV, surviving, thriving? And then also I'm really interested in the conversation of now, what can we do? What do we need to do so that this statistic, this one in two statistic doesn't exist anymore? Um, exactly. And then also I'm really interested in a conversation around what does a stigma-free world look like? Um, Cause I think that's one of the most important things for us to be able to get to what a cure looks like. We need to be able to exist in a stigma-free world and that will help us get to a place of being to exist in a, in a world where there is no longer HIV and AIDS. So that's my hope with uh, one and two. From your mouth to God's ear. You know, mm -hmm. I have one final question for you. What, um, in terms of your craft and your art, what haven't you done that, that you'd like to do? What's, what's next for you? What's next for Danye? I say this all the time, and I'm excited. 
if it is even possible. I love, I love me some stage directions. I love me some stage directions. I love to be able to hopefully one day write a play that is essentially all stage directions where there is no dialogue and we literally just see what it looks like for these characters, for whoever is in this piece um, to exist and to navigate without actually speaking to each other. I don't know what that play looks like. I don't know if that play is even possible, but I'm going to try to one day see what that piece of work looks like. That's something that actually is really interesting for me. And then I, I think about Tennessee Williams oftentimes would describe his stage directions as love letters to the audience. Mm -hmm. So I would love to be able to really create a bomb ass play that is nothing but a love letter to the audience. What is it about Off-Broadway that keeps you coming back? Um, and Off-Broadway is such um, a rawness to the work. It's such an urgency to the work is such intimacy to the work that always excites me. And it's, it's so vast. You can see a million off-Broadway shows, and if you're lucky enough, it can all be so different and something that you wouldn't expect and that you didn't even know was possible to be able to put on stage. And I think that's the thing that's so exciting about off-Broadway. This queer man's coming through. Yes! <laughs> And that's our show. Thanks for listening to Live at the Lortel, brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Foundation. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer Eric Ostro, associate producer Jeffrey Schubart, and press by Chris Kanarik. The show's production manager is Zebulon Brown, house manager is Charles Shipman, box office manager is Daigoro Hirahata. Social media is Mia Radia. Live at the Lortel is recorded at the Lucille Lortel Theater in New York City by Bryant Falk and Abacus Entertainment. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz and Rebecca Kriegler.